Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Episode 77 of Suncast. I basically have no depth perception. The only normal life thing where it becomes an issue is when you're driving and you come up to like an intersection and the car's coming. I use the math analogy, like a point derivative versus a local derivative. Point derivative, you just say like, what's the equation of my line? I integrate the equation and like, I know precisely what the integral is, like what the slope. Local is like, I just have to look at a couple points and then look at like how it moves over a couple points. And that's what I do. Like other people can like instantly tell the speed of a car. I just watch for like two seconds and then you can figure out the speed of a car. It's like a clearly thing. I know that I've developed skills that people with depth perception just can do it better than I can. You are really going to love this week's <laughs> Suncast episode with one of the smartest guys I know in this industry. This is Suncast. In every battle, there's a front line. On that front line are warriors whose courage and actions shape the outcome of the battle. The world is currently engaged in a literal power struggle, a battle in global energy as it evolves from fossil fuels to renewable energy. Suncast is a conversation with solar warriors on the front lines, building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. We learn their secrets to personal and professional growth, market development, and industry insights. And now, join solar industry veteran, Latin America fanatic, and your host, Nico Johnson. Welcome, welcome, welcome. This is episode 77 of Suncast. I'm your host, Nico Johnson. And I am so glad that you're back with me again this week. If you've been listening for the last few episodes, we've been talking about tools that today's leading solar companies are using to grow their business. And today, I have the real pleasure of sitting down with one of my good friends in the solar biz who, along with his partner, has built arguably the most recognizable software for most of you, especially if you've been doing commercial solar for any period of time. Back in Adam Garza's episode, which is number 73, if you didn't have a chance to check it out, I mentioned how easily 50% of the installers I meet are using that product called Energy Toolbase. You know, I'd be willing to bet that number is actually closer to 80% for today's guest's product. He hit me with the staggering fact that they have over 3,000 users, so whether you are or aren't one of the 3,000 rabid fans who already sing the praises of Helioscope from the rooftops, you'll want to hang around for today's episode with Paul Grana of Folsom Labs and learn more about how and why this software has gotten such traction in the solar market. I hope that you did also check out our Tactical Tuesday episode, which is number 76 this week, with Scott Sullivan coming back for a cameo all about tuning up your LinkedIn skills. I loved hearing from folks like Matthew Ellis and Travis Bell, both of whom took action to let us know they had not only heard but are implementing what they've learned. These and many more actionable tactics and strategies await you on our Tactical Tuesday series. So do check those out when they hit. It's a nice, brief morsel of sunlight for your commute. They're generally shorter and more actionable. If you are enjoying Suncast, as I hope you are, would you please consider rating and reviewing the show in iTunes or sharing the episode with a friend? We are currently sitting around 40 ratings and reviews after 76 episodes, and I sure would love to see that number get over 50. 
And for some reason, iTunes still highlights reviews that are related to the original sort of earlier content around Latin America stuff. And while I love that stuff, as you know, I'm branching out beyond just Latin America, and I'd love to get the newer shows featured as well. Would you help? Your positive review and subscription actually does help others find the show, which might be the highest praise and help you could possibly offer to Suncast. And for that, I sincerely thank you. All right, now back to today on Suncast. When I was in San Francisco recently, I finally got a chance to sit down with my good buddy, Paul Grana of Folsom Labs. Now, you no doubt more readily identify Paul by the product I mentioned, that namely Helioscope, which he's become the face of. And Paul's been on my target list for a while. And since we've also known each other for a long time, this interview became somewhat of an epic where he and I explore more than just the beginnings of Helioscope and his partnership with the other Paul, Paul Gibbs. You know, we dive into the failures and left turns that led the Pauls to team up, why they focused on SaaS at all, the value of experience and network when making career moves, the core philosophy underlying the Helioscope product and how that has led to such rapid adoption. And along the way, gleaning insight into how they have dominated with no outside sales team. One of Paul's earliest pieces of advice as a Suncast fan was, hey, Nico, can you please make your episode shorter? Well, Paul, this is somewhat your fault because we did talk for a long time. But in honor of my commitment to do that, I'm going to test once again splitting up an episode into two parts. So today is part one of my conversation with Paul Grana. And next week, we'll have part two, where Paul and I spend more time on some of his tactics for growth and lessons learned. This is a great conversation, and I know you are going to love it in its entirety. Thanks again for setting aside this time in your day. Please enjoy this week's episode of Suncast, part one with Paul Grana. If you've ever had that cool friend who is equal parts nerd and cool guy. He has the uncanny ability of explaining nerdy things in human, understandable, layman terms. Then you'll appreciate today's episode with my buddy, Paul Grana, the co-founder of Folsom Labs. You probably, if you're like, geez, I don't know, 30 to 50% of our industry have used a little tool he and his co-founder, Paul, the Pauls, created called Helioscope. If you haven't, by the end of this episode, I hope that you are compelled to understand why you should. Also, he's a Suncast super fan from day one and always have intended to do this episode. So stoked to be here in the Folsom Labs man cave. Great to have you here. Yeah. So there are so many things that we could talk about. For those who aren't familiar with Helioscope, we'll certainly take some time to break that down. You're a young tech founder in our industry. You're one of the early SaaS founders who exclusively focused on solar. I am really interested in how you got from, you've done a lot, business consulting, Harvard graduate school, to how you got into solar. And I'd love to hear a little bit of that background, why you guys thought it, was, it made sense to go and found a solar-centric SaaS company. 
college, I was studying a combination of math and econ. And math was the thing that I really enjoyed. And the funny thing was, I was incredibly naive. And I thought that I would never get a job with a math degree. And then I needed something else to make myself employable. And that's why I, I did econ. And so I was always kind of a fan of this more science-y angle. Loved physics, actually. That plays into why I eventually landed in solar. So then I did management consulting as sort of like, what's the hardest thing you could do coming out of college? Yeah. And management consulting was kind of the hardest thing you could do. It was great for the first two years. It was okay for the third year. And then it got really boring by the fourth year. The mix of how much I was learning versus teaching went from 80-20 to 20-80, mm-hmm. you know, by the time you get into year four. Then it was perfect segue to business school. And it was in business school that I really said, okay, I don't know what I want to do next, but I want to do something real. And I want it to be a 10-year decision. So mm-hmm. I was thinking about business school. And it, it honestly took me six months to just clear my head. Yeah. So I really couldn't have done it without a true sabbatical where business school is a nice segue for that. At first, I was looking at everything, you know, quant trading. Again, I love math. So like, yeah. is quant trading fun? I looked at like GEs, like, you know, like GE, because why not? That's a, that's a, R-E-L-P. That, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Noble Energy Leadership Program. Me too. And then, you know, just like, just like spending a lot of time with people and with all kinds of career paths to see what makes sense. When it came to the internship, I had decided that energy was where all the interesting stuff would be happening because this is around 2008 or so. So like, okay, clearly something's going to happen. Climate change is real. And I actually had internship offers at a biofuels company, a battery company, and a solar company. And that was when I had to go from, okay, I think energy is interesting to actually solar is probably the best bet here. Part of it was, frankly, it's biology, chemistry, and physics, respectively, for those three things. You know, so I was sort of like, physics is the most predictable of all three. And so I ended up doing that internship with Abound Solar. They were actually called AVA, which, which stood for Air Vacuum Air. Wow. Um, and then during that summer of 2008, we rebranded from AVA to Abound. Mm-hmm. We raised 104 million bucks. That closed in August of 08 before the world fell apart in right. September of 08. Yeah, yeah. So it was like a really well-timed fundraise. It was also helpful because doing a fundraise and working the business school network, I left that summer, not just with the experience of having worked on a large fundraise, mm-hmm. but like knowing sort of a couple network. dozen VCs, right. exactly. It's amazing. And then just trying to work that angle for then full-time. So then as I was looking at full-time, I was like, solar is great. I love solar. Yeah. And at that moment in 2009, I was saying there were two things that were interesting. One was thin film manufacturing mm-hmm. because of the time for solos yeah. were 30 billion. Certainly. And, and Abound was looking at that. Abound was, yeah. had just raised 100 million. Cylindra, which I actually never thought Cylindra was a good idea, but yeah. heck, they had raised a lot of money. Laser so had Nano Solar, which yep. was a horrible, horribly run company. Amia Soleil, which was a really well run company. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there was a whole family of like interesting thin film players. That's right. And then there were all these module level power electronics. And so basically, those are the two areas that I was like, I want to work at one of those dozen-ish companies. Right. So I was doing a network job search with a pretty narrowly defined set of companies. And in both cases, it was just, what was the hardest sets of problems to be working on? FinFilm was all about scaling and manufacturing. Modular power electronics, all about how do you sell this really interesting and novel technology. So I ended up actually through like a long winding um, network job search, getting a job with EIQ, which did right. um, high voltage DC boost optimizers, yep. then moved over to Tygo when really it just seemed like a series architecture was better than parallel. Can you explain what that means? What's the difference? Yeah. For those that don't know. Yep. So a normal module on a normal day gives you about 35 volts. A normal inverter on a normal day wants about 350 volts, yeah. give or take. So in the normal solar array, you would put those modules in series, the voltage adds in series, 10 modules feeds your 350 volt inverter. Right. Obviously there's details that I'm skipping. 
typing, but that's pretty sure. much the gist. EIQ was saying, we're going to boost every module from 35 to 350. And they had a wonderful architecture for the highest efficiency 10x boost you could get. But the problem is the best version of a 10x boost is still like 98% efficient, right. which is 2% loss that you just don't need to take. Right. Plus, it's pretty expensive to do it. So the sort of cost and efficiency penalty really worked against that architecture. And by the way, if you truly need individual module by individual module, microinverters kind of give you that too. So it was kind of stuck in between the value prop of DC optimizers and the value prop of, of microinverters. And EIQ was around the time that Enphase was beginning to really get a All little bit of these companies, right? Basically, there were about a dozen companies that were founded in, within about 18 months of each other. Yeah, yeah. And they all raised a Series A right around 2008, 2009. So you did end up going from EIQ, parlaying that to Tygo. What convinced you to, after a year and almost a year and a half of work at EIQ, what convinced you to move over to Tygo? I would almost describe it as being an MBA, I definitely wasn't going to be the one to look at a circuit board design and assess if it's good or not. Yeah. So it took me, I mean, not an exact year, but let's say six months of selling our stuff, selling against competitors and realizing the pros and cons. Yeah. And as soon as I did that, I started to realize that this boost thing has a ceiling and the ceiling is relatively low. And so then it was some period of time of trying to convince the management team that we need to make a change. Right. So it was both, I had to sort of learn from the front lines. Then of course you try to change things. You don't just like skip out immediately. But when the founders seemed like they were all about making the best darn boost device they could, yeah. it was like, okay, that's just the wrong game to be playing. Yeah. So I need to go, you know, play at this better architecture. And you had VC connection to Tygo? Actually, I met the Tygo team before I met EIQ. It was funny. I got connected to them through one of the investors, met Jeff Crissa when he was maybe the only U.S. employee. They hadn't announced a single thing about what they were doing. Because hmm. keep in mind, their team was still in Israel, and they had a patent. And one of the things that I was doing is I was doing this network job search was reading patents. Mm. And it was something where it actually worked out really well because you learn all this stuff that people don't think is public, but mm -hmm. it's like they file it with the patent trademark office. Right. It is completely public, totally. but it's not in the news, so they That's think right. it's totally private. Yeah. So I walk in, and I had never even heard of optimizers before. And I was like, it seems like you're putting wireless chips behind a solar module. Why are you doing that? Like, I, I saw, I'm, I'm reading a patent about wireless behind a module. Like, tell me about this stuff. And he, like, Jeff was like completely taken aback because he thought, like, because they were stealth. Nobody knew this thing. But at, again, at the time, he was the only employee who wasn't building a team yet. So then nine months later, after I'd just taken the, so as I was maybe three months into EIQ, Jeff actually calls me, doesn't realize I'm with EIQ, says, hey, yeah, I'm, I'm hiring now. And I was like, yeah, sorry, you know, I've already got a job. And again, I'm an MBA. I don't know the difference. You yeah. know, so like in hindsight, if I had known, I would have said, well, great, like this thing, you know, but again, I'm still pretty naive. But then, like I said, when, when it was time to go, it was a relatively easy call to make. I remember we met when I was at Trina and it was towards the end of your time at Tygo, frankly, you had already started building Helioscope. I remember well, a lot of things, but in particular, Trina was one of the product partners that worked really hard along with Tygo to commercialize the idea of optimizers. Trina Smart was the brand that we gave the Tygo inside approach. And one of the things that we spent a lot of, I mean, you and I spent a lot of time on demos for Helioscope in particular. One of the things that we found at Trina that folks didn't understand about optimizers was, how does this work with PVSYST, right? And for those who are unfamiliar, I can't imagine they are, but PVSYST is the de facto bank-approved yield modeling or forecasting software out of France. It's the standard for utility. And at this time, 2012, 13, it wasn't really a standard for Resi and commercial, except perhaps, I mean, there's, well, there are PV watts. 
might be considered standard. SAM, Solar Advisor Model, built by NREL. There's RETC out of Canada and a handful out of Europe that had focused on it. Nobody really understood, and arguably, you know, even though they were creating a product, Tygo, EIQ, SolarEdge, Enphase in particular, really missed a key piece of engagement with the customer, which is how to help the customer forecast the improvement in yield. Does that accurately sum up some of the stuff that you started observing while at EIQ and Taiga? Yeah. So the transition from optimizers to Folsom Labs and Helioscope is really closely related. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's kind of interesting. In fact, it's in the most general sense, I give this advice to job seekers all the time, mm-hmm. which is work on the most interesting problem you can find. Because even though you're going to get a job at a company, there are going to be tangentially related things opportunities that come out of that so that your problem is someone else's solution. And that someone else's solution might be your startup that you create to fix your own problem. And that's what happened with me and with us. Actually, if I go all the way back, the very beginning of how the Paul and Paul story began was Gibbs was still in business school. Paul Gibbs, your co-founder. Paul Gibbs, my, co- my, my, my now co-founder. He was in business school. And when he did his internship, he interned with me. Now, this is actually at EIQ. So then basically during that summer, I had a list of like eight things because I was the one MBA at a 30-person company. So basically we had like sales team, engineering team, and everything else in the middle was my problem. And it's fun, but you're always so overcommitted. I actually had two interns, one from Stanford, one from Harvard, and I had a list of 10 projects. Mm -hmm. And I was like, each of these is a complete self-contained project. Each of you guys pick one or two of them, and that can be your summer project. So actually at the time, the Stanford guy was negotiating with Solmetric. So for those that don't know, those guys make the SunEye, which is a great product. Yeah. They also have a, a Solmetric designer. Yep. Actually, a quick backstory on that. Solmetric took an angel round from National Semiconductor. Yeah. Way back in the day. They took the National Semiconductor investment and as part, as one of the strings on the investment, because National Semiconductor had an optimizer too, Solar That's Magic. Right. Solar Magic. And they said, here's a quarter million investment. By the way, here's some code for calculating the upside of our products. Stick it into your designer. And they did. So there was a button that you said, am I using Solar Magic? You click the button and the energy boosts up. Mm-hmm. So actually that summer when Gibbs was interning for me, he wasn't working on building a physics model. That was one of the projects on the list. He actually didn't work on that. He was working on like a configurator and like designer, mm-hmm. like a, like a, just a more of a straight vo- like yeah. voltage thing. Instead, we were negotiating with Solmetric to license that code because we thought Solmetric had this hardcore math model yeah. that they had gotten from National Semiconductor and they had no strings to it. So, so we were just going to sub-license it so right. that we could also use it to calculate our own upside. Right. Well, we negotiated, we signed, we were about to send them the first $5,000 wire because I was like, it was just like literally cash for a carbon copy of the code. They had yeah. to do no work. Wow. Then they look at the code and they call us up and they say, don't send us your money. We're not going to take your money. This code is pure SHIT. And they proceeded to remove everything. Basically, it was just a patch. It's just like, just it didn't do any physics at all. Oh it just God. like boosted some numbers, like literally add function. Like times 1.25. Exactly. <laughs> so it's like, it's, it doesn't reflect nicely on National Semiconductor. Or it, Solar Magic. But good on Solmetric yeah, yeah, for not taking our money. Like yeah. they, they, Those guys like are I so, said, yeah, we, we had signed, we didn't, we didn't put quality conditions in the contract. It was yeah. just like, we assumed it was good. You know? right. so, and, and why not? And why not? National Semiconductor. And that was at the very end of the summer. So that's kind of, at that moment, now Gibbs is leaving. He's going back to school. He knows that there's a dozen startups funded, right? Enphase, Solar Edge, Tygo, EIQ, whatever. And, and he knows that nothing exists on the market. Literally nothing. 
No because physics, no physics models. No good physics yeah. models. Because all the models at the time, you do one calculation, you multiply by n. You know, if you have a, a thousand modules, you calculate what one module is going to do, you multiply by a thousand, and then you haircut for your losses. Right. That doesn't cut the it. The PV watts model, basically. Yeah, the PV watts. It's the same that the, the, the PV sys does. It's a little bit better physics. Yeah. But it's the same idea. When you are trying to build a company around improving mismatch, mm -hmm. when mismatch is a guess from the user, that is no way to build a business. Yeah. So that's really how things get started for Folsom Lab. So while in grad school, Gibbs starts building this physics tool that does module level calculations so that all of us building optimizers and, and, and microinverters can rigorously show the stuff. Because lo and behold, no one who was trying to help you sell it in the field could get an installer to believe the numbers. It was almost binary. Mm -hmm. There were a bunch of Resi installers who were convinced it was 10%, which mm -hmm. was like a little bit insane. Yeah. But the true believers gave it 10%. Mm -hmm. And then the skeptics, you, you couldn't change their minds either. You right. know? And neither zero nor 10 are the right numbers. Yeah. You know? But mm -hmm. that was the trouble is like it was kind of one or the other. So then he starts building it in grad school. And then actually there was a good solid year when he graduates. Now I'm with Tygo. And we basically had, he was a contractor for us. So mm -hmm. he still kind of owned the, his model. And basically I would get a customer. So I had the same role at Tiger, right? We had a wholesale team, whole That's engineering right. team. Anything else that didn't fit nicely was mine. So the typical thing that would happen, customer sends us a CAD layout for a megawatt-ish rooftop. Says, hey, this might make sense for Tygo. I'm open-minded, but you've got to convince me as an engineer, not just as a religious discussion. And then salesperson forwards it to me. I forward it to Gibbs. He would rebuild it, simulate it, and then we would set up a three-way call where he would present to the customer his results. And it was actually worked out really well because he wasn't on payroll. He didn't have stock in Tygo. He frankly, his incentives were to get the numbers right, not to make Tygo right. look good. Yeah. And that just made it all the more stronger case that like, hey, when we say the upside is whatever it is, 2.2%, the pretty rigorous 2.2%. Well, so, so there's two upshots of that process. One is he was literally trying to recreate these megawatt systems with all kinds of hairy pipes and stuff. So he was user one of this product. Yeah. And part of even to this day where the thing that most people care most about is usability. We are so good at usability mm -hmm. because our core product grows out of a founder who used it himself for a long, long time. So usability is kind of built in from the beginning as opposed to when you found a company, you've got like one or two business founders, a handful of engineers, you whiteboard it and the engineers go do it. And like, you kind of lose usability when that translation happens through whiteboard and product requirements and kind of the standard product BS. That's one important upshot of even that process is kind of baked into our processes and culture today. Mm -hmm. The other piece of it is because these commercial customers wanted to use the numbers, it actually forced us to make sure the numbers were the same as PVSYST. So in that time, we thought we were going to build a better PVSYST. Right. And not just the same, but like there's improvement to do a better job. Mm -hmm. And actually, Tygo paid BW Engineering, which is now DNVGL, right. to basically make the model bankable. And through that process, they basically said, so, this, so, you know, so now Jeff Newmiller, who is like the modeling genius at, at DNVGL, yeah. he was like, okay, the basic job, you have to be the same as PVSYST. Yeah. And we were, at first we were like, no way, that can't be right. We're going to do better than PVSYST. Yeah. And he, he was, his answer in more or less was like, look, for the last decade, we've been truing up large systems to match PVSYST. Whenever the real world doesn't match PVSYST, we like hammer the math in PVSYST to make sure it's good. So our best thinking as an industry is reflected in the physics of PVSYST. So when you match PVSYST, you're not just matching some arbitrary physics. You are matching the collective wisdom of solar developers, like the bank's advisors. That's amazing. And so when he put it that way, it's hard to say no. So that was really the thinking behind what we say now as 
we're within 1% of PVCIST. There was a real process. We went from, we're going to do a better job than PVCIST to, okay, we've got the exact same physics, plus it does module level calculations, so the mismatch is a real number, and plus it's way more usable. And all that kind of happened while I was still at Tygo, and it wasn't for a good year or two that I like later joined as a co-founder, but for a while it was just Paul doing his thing. That's fantastic. For those who aren't necessarily trying to geek out on math and physics, I apologize. This is a decidedly geeky conversation around why a software product exists that really, in many ways, I think helped other companies feel like they could set sail. I don't think that is outside of the realm of fair to a slew of other companies that would be either peers or competitors. One of the things that a lot of folks as entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs are thinking about, like they have jobs, right? You have to keep the lights on while you're trying to figure out your idea. There's two things that I would love to understand as you're evaluating the decision, and we'll call the decision that being deciding to leave Tygo and not go get another job, because it was obvious, like, for those who aren't familiar with the Tygo story, like Tygo, like every startup in our industry, especially in a, in a new segment, had its share of, like, financing woes and customer adoption woes, et cetera. It was clear that Enphase and SolarEdge were gaining massive market share and that microinverters were uh, gaining traction. I mean, this time, Enphase had well over 50% of the resi market, well under arm. Walk me through that decision. I know you as a super analytical person. Walk me through, how did you go about saying, okay, I have a Harvard MBA. I am a management consultant pedigree. I could do, like I could make hundreds of thousands of dollars right now. I'm flying my do-good banner in the renewable industry. You must have thought, well, should I even stay in renewables? Is this really a 10-year adventure? Can you walk me through how you sort of frame that out for yourself? And I wonder at the same time, part two, how much of your management consulting rigor and practice informed the way you approached your exit from Tygo into full-time with Helioscope? You really did hit on some of the stuff that was, um, that was going on at that time. I think the other piece from a personal point of view is around that time, my girlfriend had just moved from LA up to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. So my long distance girlfriend became my live-in girlfriend, now wife, and we've got a two and a half year old. So, you know, it all ends <laughs> Happy well. Happy story, yeah. So... Yeah, I do think probably the primary factor, you're right. As I was thinking that Tygo wasn't going to be the future, I was looking hard at leaving solar. And I didn't want to because I still loved solar. But at the time, there were no startups. You know, there were no novel companies. The, the startups were the Tygos and Enphases right. and solar. They were hardware companies mostly. Yeah. yeah. Enphases and Solar, as you said, were pretty much clear winners. I could have gone to be like mid-level like marketing manager yeah. at SolarEdge. And you're a great product manager. Like you could totally kill that role. Sure. But, it's, but it would have been the exact same role that I just done That's for four right. years. If anything, it just went back to, hey, I told myself this is a 10-year game and I'm only on year five. Yeah. And that was kind of the factor in staying. The flip side of that was my wife still misses Southern California. Uh-huh. She's a SoCal girl. And so the flip side was... Do I go to Southern California and just be a management consultant? You know, like I had friends in the Bain office in LA and that would have been an easy transition to make. As a quick tangent, I often would have this, whenever the things on the solar side were like frustrating, I would think back to management consulting. Mm -hmm. So the the analogy I want to give, and I, I never had one of these girlfriends, but the like the high school girlfriend where she was very attractive, but it was a substance-free relationship. Yeah. You know, like you never really connected on an emotional mm-hmm. level, yeah. but she was fun. Satisfied your ego. Yeah, or yeah, exactly. It's sort of like 
it was good on all the surface things, but none of the deeper things. Yeah. And that's what consulting still is to me. It was yeah. a fun few years. It was good on the surface things, compensation, travel, the the senior management. I mean, I was I had had so many you know meetings as a twenty year old where I'm sitting there with like C level people at Fortune five hundred companies asking your advice. Yeah. Um, and like getting into some fun situations, but you're also just a hired gun. You're changing industries every six months. You start to realize you're just going to be a, some 40, 50, 60 year old person with basically no real skill other than sounding smart, not mm-hmm. actually being smart. Wow. And so like all the deeper things, it was completely not fulfilling. Yeah. And so that's part of where like the solar industry is kind of the opposite. It's like not so great for compensation, but it's good for like doing real things that matter both for your own company, for your customers, and for, you know, like the world. So it was like, it couldn't be more yin and yang. And you can see where when you get frustrated with the solar stuff, you're like, oh man, consulting sounds so good right now. Of course. But then you just have to remember that like it was completely unfulfilling, just like that, you know, again, that that fake girlfriend that I never really had one of those, but you know, you could imagine. So yeah, it, it was hard to sort of consider, do we sort of like pull the ripcord, go to SoCal, be a consultant, mm-hmm. and just like kind of do that for my wife because she was putting her time in, in in the Bay Area. But it was actually, frankly, she was kind of like, you know what? I think you should try this. It sounds like an interesting opportunity. Cool. Give it a shot and see what see what it's like. Honestly, I don't think either of us really knew how hard it would be. Yeah. You know, that, that's how the story always goes, you know, but... Twice as long, twice as it, it was so long, you know, and still had business school loans. So like uh-huh. going without a paycheck was like doubly hard because uh-huh. you had some, you know, pretty, pretty how, steep... How long was the time school without a paycheck? About a year for me. You know, Gibbs went a little bit longer because he was kind of a consultant, but like wasn't, was barely kind of making things yep. work. So... Uh-huh. About a year or so. Were you finally able to pay yourselves when you raised money or got revenue positive by bootstrapping it? Yeah, exactly. So we bootstrapped. So we launched Q1 2014 and we were just kind of ramen profitable then. And then we raised Q4 2014. Yeah. And frankly, that helped the kind of the bargaining position when we didn't need the money. So that part of it, I'm very happy that we were able to do. And frankly, it was only because Gibbs was able to teach himself like so much computer science. Like he's he's a physics undergrad, <laughs> management consultant, yeah. MBA. Nothing yeah. in that resume would tell you that he's gonna like actually learn Python, JavaScript, and C. Yeah. But he did. You yeah. know, so like this it was hardcore f- stuff. Let's jump into hot or hype and then we'll swing back around. So yeah. you know how this works, hot or hype. I'll name a specific market or topic. You can just spend thirty or sixty seconds on whether you think it is hot or hype and why. We'll start with the notion that microgrids can become or will become a core function of the future of our grid system. I'm not an expert at this, but I would humbly say that I think for the edges of the grid, it's absolutely, it's hot. Where the grid exists, it's hype. I think if you look at what's going on in Puerto Rico now, you realize that having islandable microgrids would be a huge help. Right. But on the other hand... From a resilience perspective. Exactly. It's, and if you're talking about mainland U.S., Florida did pretty well after, was it Harvey? Like, our utilities are pretty darn good at what they do. You yeah. could argue, uh, what what should they be doing? Yeah. But when it comes to maintaining the grid and getting mm-hmm. it back up and working again, I think our utilities do really well. Now, that being said, I'm a huge fan of islandable inverters. When your power's down for... In 24 hours, when solar gets you a cold beer and a hot shower, uh-huh. that's huge. 
And so I love that capability because even if it's just one day, again, that's not exactly a make or break you know, life in the US, but talk about marketing for solar. When you can invite your neighbors over, that's right. You know, to, to neighborhoods, actually like neighborhoods dark except over at Paul's house, except over at the one house that's got solar. And by the way, the, the people don't realize that you don't get that for free. You no, know, most right. solar systems are grid connected and not islandable, and right. unless you ask for it, you don't get that. But when that's the norm, I think that's going to be huge. So why don't we go to that next? How about hot or hype solar plus storage? We don't do storage yet. So I would want Meaning to Meaning Helioscope say, doesn't model that's storage. Right, that's right. Helioscope doesn't model storage yet. We've noticed a change in how our customers ask for it. Mm. Whereas for a good three, four years, it was, are you doing storage in a very theoretical sense? And you know, about six months ago, they said, well, you know what? I'm looking at the cost curves. And if they keep behaving the way they have, I'm about a year away from this being pretty much the basis of my business. And so it seems like it's not there yet, yeah. but now people can actually start to calculate when it's going to be happening as opposed to it's an interesting thing around the corner, but you never know where that corner is. So to me, it's coming and it's going to be here in a matter of time. On the other hand, if Gerza says it's hype, then I'm going to go with what he says. So, um, <laughs> Gerza I'm, being the uh, CMO of Energy Toolbase. Yeah, exactly. So, so um, uh, after hearing him answer this in, in, the, hype, <laughs> in the hype stage, uh, who am I to disagree with that man? So I'm just going to I'm gonna concede to him and actually final answer is hype. Phone a friend version. Wow, the phone a friend. And it goes to our dear friend Adam Gerza at ETB. All right, that's, I, didn't, I didn't see that coming. We just introduced a new element. All right, <laughs> hotter hype, the nexus of renewables and the electrification of the automobile industry. Meaning renewables as a function of integrating the class of EVs that are coming into our grid. Yeah, I mean, I think as a dispatchable load, you can't beat that. Mm -hmm. So, uh, no, but it, and it's a panacea. My question is, is it hot or hype? <laughs> all these tricky questions. I think hype. I think the American car buying decision is so fickle. We're back to buying trucks because gas is cheap. Right. So, I think EVs. I'm a huge EV believer, but I think that part is going to come a lot slower than we would all like to think. The commercial and industrial sector, near and dear to your heart as the new hot market. Again, I love the answer that, that, that Gerza gave here. And we, we should mention, like we, we have so many mutual customers with those guys right. that, because we've got the design and engineering and they've got the financials yep. and it's a, it's a match made in heaven. I think if you look at what's going on on the Resi side and the ups and downs they've had, if nothing else, just frankly, Tesla changing SolarCity's marketing budget has had a massive impact on the industry. And if you think about that versus CNI just doesn't have that kind of whipsaw yeah. happening. So if anything, like slow and steady, it's a, it's a great market. Mm -hmm. There are really great companies that really know what they're doing. And you don't have to have some 800 pound gorilla with a billion dollar marketing budget yeah. that's driving things. And you don't have the, the risk of that marketing budget vaporizing when they're acquired. That's right. It's not a sexy market. So it's almost, it's almost neither. It's sort of just a wonderfully dependable and very sophisticated market. Those of you who are strictly Paul Grana fanboys and Helioscope and you jumped on this recording because you wanted to hear Paul and maybe you're on his email list, maybe you check out episode 73, which is Adam Gerza of Energy Toolbase. I'm amazed if you don't currently use that product. And of course, it integrates so seamlessly and easily with Helioscope, thanks to the free API from Helioscope to partners like ETB that are also adding value for over $1,000 in the US. Final hot or hype, blockchain as it relates to the energy sector. I am pretty squarely hype, and I'm probably going to eat my words. But a guy named Kyle Forbath, I heard him on a different podcast. He is not even connected to energy, but he's very intelligently skeptical of blockchain. He makes a point that basically if it can be done without blockchain, it should be done without blockchain. 
So it's not to say that blockchain has any fundamental problems at all. And it enables things that couldn't have happened otherwise. But that's the question you have to ask yourself is, is this an application we can't solve through a regular ledger versus a public ledger? And then again, I would, I hope there are applications in solar. I would love for there to be cases where it's helpful. And by the way, we actually organized the Solar Software Summit. Uh -huh. Actually, I'll plug that. Yep. Totally. If anybody's listening in time, April 30th in San Diego, we coordinate with, with Green Tech Media. It's a sister conference to their flagship solar summit. So Monday, April 30, people should go. And we're actually going to do a blockchain debate. Because uh -huh. I'm not a hater, I'm humbly skeptical. But the final point I want to make on blockchain is the people who are doing blockchain for peer-to-peer -peer transactions. Mm -hmm. That might check the box of something that you couldn't do without blockchain. On the other hand, aren't we struggling with getting people to pay attention at all? I thought the deal with homeowners is they don't give a damn. They just want to like not get screwed on their bill. Pardon my language. There, I've got to make it explicit now. And, <laughs> and by and large, they want everything to be autopilot. So why do they need peer-to-peer -peer transactions? That's right. So Doesn't this complicate things a little more than we need? This isn't in times. Exactly. Uh -huh. And if we're talking about it enables real-time markets so you could have ideal pricing, maybe if the utilities never get there, yeah. then like maybe this is the way we get there. But again, I think it's a big-time fallacy for us to think the utilities won't ever come through on stuff. You know, I mean, it's, it's so easy to bash blue-chip companies, and they're usually smarter than we think they are. Oh, and so. by the way, see Exhibit A, Paul's answer on hot or high microgrids, <laughs> which, <laughs> yeah, which dovetails I, nicely. I, with, I don't really think of myself as, uti <laughs> as a utility apologist, even though a lot of our biggest customers are utilities, but like, I care about my own customers, and they're That's usually right. like selling to and, and you know, often pitted against the utilities. Yeah. But it's more just like a systematic bias thinking that big companies can't do anything Mm -hmm. I think is the generalizable fallacy that people often get into. How do you, at a networking event, or even even better, over the holidays, hanging out with your wife's college friends, explain what helioscope? So most people have heard of AutoCAD. Mm -hmm. So I just describe it as it's a poor man's AutoCAD. Mm -hmm. Cloud-based, really easy to use, and it lets you just pull up a building Figure out what's going to fit. You can see what it's going to look like. Figure out what's going to fit. Uh, how much solar you're going to fit on that building. Okay. How well it's going to produce given something that's nearby. Building a piece of ground. But yeah. like there's a concept of buildings kind mm. of easier for a layman to understand sure. it. Basically a way to figure out what's the bill of materials, what's the energy yield, and going to get a bunch of output for not mm. a lot of input. What did people do to get that before Helioscope? It's actually interesting because... The answer to that question segments out differently if you're talking about residential versus commercial. Okay. Residential. Who's your, who's your ideal customer, resi or commercial, in terms of avatar? We're pretty close. Which is a, it's a very deep mix on both. Mm -hmm. I think the easier sell is commercial because the competitive set is, the, the bar on commercial is so much higher. Right. But the competitive set is basically PV assistant AutoCAD. There's no way you're going to hack your way through to a commercial design on a resi-purposed tool. There's about a dozen other alternative products in the resi market, yeah. and a few that were before us. You yeah. know, CPF tools. That's been on the market. I mean, that's, that's what I was going to say, right? Yeah. You've got CPF tools, which for those who don't know, was the original tool set that was a part of what is now Spruce Clean Power Finance, and they still have a great program. Yep. Led by yeah. Which was, frankly, it was a loss leader for them. It yeah. was a way for them to get users for their financing. Exactly. Which is not your use case. You've got Aurora, yep. Yep. which is, by all standards, like probably the gold standard right now for resi design. Kind of peers to yours in terms of time in market. And you're right, on the commercial side, there just isn't a whole lot. There's PV Complete, which is looking at making AutoCAD easier, yep. but very distinctly AutoCAD toolset exactly. oriented. And there's not much else. You know, what I hear and when I think about Helioscope and when we have private conversations around the tools that you're 
also interesting because Folsom Labs is not only Helioscope in context. It is how do we provide solutions for installers. What I hear is a software-based tool set that includes design and balance of system, balance of plant pricing in an automated fashion. Part of what we didn't realize when we launched Helioscope was how important usability and workflow and process would be to our customers. Yeah. That's the primary thing. If you think about it, and this is especially on the CNI side. Mm -hmm. So I think we almost went viral, not really viral, but like where we had this such intense demand pull was if you think about the way life is for a commercial scale developer to do a megawatt scale rooftop, that demands AutoCAD. AutoCAD demands a pretty high bar of skill. That's right. But that person that knows how to fire up AutoCAD is not the person cold calling commercial customers and just roaming around wildcatting for opportunities. And there's always tension around the sales or BD person saying, hey, how long is it going to take? Yeah, yeah. And like, hey, I was able to get the owner on the phone. I've got a meeting tomorrow. Can I get the numbers by the meeting tomorrow? And then the engineer is just like, fit basically, the numbers. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, what's my proposal look like if I had to give him one? So in that world, (laughs) when when there is a huge difference from somebody with skill, Mm -hmm. sales engineer or full scale engineer, has to then be the gatekeeper for numbers to the sales guy. When we come into that equation, both sides are so much happier because now what basically happens often, and this still happens today, is the engineering team starts the conversation usually. They'll use the product, make sure that they're comfortable with the outputs. Then... They'll say, okay, great, now I need three seats, one for me and two for my two sales guys. And then they set up, presumably they set up like all of the variables, the fixed. Exactly. They, they give the them modules, a set of rules. Yeah. Yeah. My foot on one page. Mm-hmm. I've seen a couple of these. They're you know, between one and three pages long. And it says, this is how we do things. Mm-hmm. And Which incidentally for utility scale developers is exactly how PVSYST was sort of unlocked for savvy, the savvy developers. I mean, when I was at BRI, doing commercial and utility, mm-hmm. I was using PVSYST. Yep. And we had a three-page document that Polly yep. Bronco wrote. Yep. Like, props to Polly at S-Power. <laughs> she wrote this document that explained exactly how, like, a normal, I mean, kind of not hyper-intelligent on the side of, like, how to use software, guy like myself sure. could model in PVSYST, which is not intuitive. Yep. So your engineers now are doing this on behalf of your sales guys in the field. And then the key value is now the sales guy has a whole set of boundaries where they can say yes or no to, a, to whether a roof is a good roof. Uh-huh. They can engage with that building owner. They can, and this is actually one of the other things we hear so much is because, because the program kind of like is intuitive, it's almost like this what you see is what you get type of thing. Right. People feel comfortable pulling it up in front of the user. That's right. If the building owner says, oh, actually, like we might build an addition onto this roof, you'll say, okay, great. Let's just design that out uh-huh. here. Sure, it doesn't show up on the map, but like, you say it's going to be, you know, you know, these are the, this is roughly the area, right? Here we go. That's a, that's an extra 500 kilowatts on this, on this yeah. roof or whatever. Yeah. Just the ability to like on the fly factor that stuff in yeah. so that now it's a genuine conversation with that customer, not a pushing of your numbers across the table. That's huge. And if you think about the two ways that's transforming stuff, it's first of all transforming the way sales teams and engineering teams interact. Yeah. Because now the engineering team doesn't have to be involved in the really low probability or yeah. high mortality <laughs> early stage stuff. Yeah, the kiss or kill deals. Yeah, like basically like oftentimes they'll they'll just tell the sales team, now don't bug me until either you have something that deviates from my rules or you have a signed LOI. That's right. Until then, just like you can solve your your own problems. And the sales guy is happier because now if they get something confirmed at midnight for a 9 a.m. meeting, 
they can actually get an answer by 9 a.m. versus like the engineer's never going to give you something. I mean, I shouldn't trash engineers, but you know, like you're never going to like get someone on the phone at midnight on something urgent like that. So both sides are so much happier with that. And then it transforms the sales process. You know, we actually have a bunch of people who say they've actually changed their process where they'll do their homework in advance to make sure that they know it's going to be a good system. Then they show up and explicitly say, I don't have a design done yet. I want to learn who you are, what your budget is, what your priorities are. Then I'm going to build right in front of you the system that matches your objectives as a building operator, et cetera. consultative sale. Exactly. Yeah. Like from scratch. And when you can script that, and like I said, you've done your homework, so you kind of yeah. know what the answer is going to be before you show up. But that is, it's a really powerful way to do it. It's magic. You know, again, not everybody does that, but for those that can, it's incredibly powerful. That's magic. So, you know, this is one of those things that blew my mind. I'll give you an example of what I hear that reminds me of how Helioscope really, like you said, blew up. Like when it became a, I'll call it household name in our industry, was when sales guys said, oh, then now design's easy. I had a buddy, Kevin Cassell, and you're probably familiar with Kevin. Kevin's one of your like East Coast early super users. Like, dude, just instantly saw as a developer, this just took the shackles off. I no longer have to wait on my engineering team. Are you kidding me? I remember looking over your shoulder when I was at Conergy and I said, what are you doing? This was maybe three months after I'd left Trina. I was really familiar with Helioscope. I'd never seen someone in the wild, a sales guy using Helioscope. And he said, I'm modeling my system, my deal. I said, what do you mean you're modeling your deal? Like, that's what the engineering team does. And he goes, no, why would we have Helioscope if like we had to wait on the engineering team? They'd use CAD. And I had a series of conversations with him that blew my mind how he had conceptualized, okay, I no longer have to wait on anyone. I control my pipeline and my deal flow, my volume, and more importantly, my velocity. Exactly. And similarly, a weakness that Dustin, the CEO of SolRates, identified was the amount of friction involved and the velocity reduction involved in getting deals financed for CNI. CNI historically, like residential, is is not complicated. There's companies like Dividend and Sonova and SunGage. Like, there's so many options out there. Mm-hmm. Even still, if you're an installer, you got to reach out to these guys. You got to toss stuff across the bow and wait for them to give you an answer back. Utility is not uncommon. Uh, that is the same way. And there's a hard problem with the underwriting process. But really, it's like how quickly can I get an answer back on how much this deal is going to cost to get financed without having to just take. A standard factor, which is what most people do for leasing, right? You'll just plug in a factor number, which is how ATB yep. gets to their number of what your lease price is, which, by the way, is super preliminary. Adam and I talk about this all the time. So Soul Rates, one of our sponsors, came up with a process by which I often say this when I talk to folks and they ask about Soul Rates. If you are familiar with Helioscope and how it liberated the sales team to be able to design systems on their own, now you have a tool called Soul Rates that can allow you to get a financing quote. I like to say, like, at midnight in your underwear, not waiting on a financier to get back to you on what the answer is. And it's about time. If you're a listener of Suncast and you have deals that are over 100,000 in value and you're really curious about how you can help liberate your sales team to get back to selling and to get financing proposals in the hands of their customers on the fly, literally like Paul was just saying, on the fly while they're sitting in the front of the customer, you can do it that fast with SolRates. Go to mysuncast.com forward slash SolRates, click on the Request an invitation button and SolRates will take care of you. Let them know. I think we actually have a landing page coming up soon. You'll be taken care of. SolRates loves us. We were sort of joking before we started recording and I thought I'd throw this in there. What is your superpower? I'm okay with multiple answers. Probably the single most important one. And this is relevant for anyone that ever sees me at a conference. (laughs) I drink more water than probably anybody that you know. Wow. Just to put some numbers behind it, because obviously who wouldn't... But by the way, I track a lot. I don't track water consumption because it's it's kind of too much. Untenable. (laughs) But I tried tracking for a couple days. As you can see in the office, we've got these pint glasses. In fact, I collect as many as I can. We've got so systems. If you have a pint glass, Paul collects them. 
Yeah, we love pine glasses. Um, we've, we've got to do our own branded ones yet. I grabbed some Fister Energy from the East Coast uh, conference last week. Yeah. Those, 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 uh, those are great. Anyway, we were doing a little water challenge on the office. I was drinking about 20 pint glasses a day. What's that in liters? We're going to look it up. On, thank you, Google. Yeah. So 20 pints, 9.5 liters. No way. Yeah. Almost 10 liters. Yeah. It's a ton. How is that humanly possible? A lot. It's a lot. <laughs> You're right. That is a superpower. So pretty much what I do when I go to a conference is the first thing that I do pretty much every trip is I grab a zip car and I go to Target and I get like one or two pallets. Like basically if it's like in a cold or yeah. desert, you know, Toronto in December or Phoenix yeah. in the summer, I'm getting two pallets of water because that's just what it takes. Yeah. And let's be clear. It's one. It's because your other superpower is the ability to stand on your feet without peeing for hours on end explaining the exact same thing would be potential customers. Yeah, it's funny at conferences we used to say, especially in the early days when we were sort of like growing really aggressively or yeah. awareness was growing, we used to joke that the mark of a standard Fossil Maps conference was that you just don't eat until six, six o'clock. Yeah. Like basically like by the time you, the show starts, there would be two of us. Like we yeah. would, at the first intersolar, we were a two-person company yeah. manning our little 10 by 10 booth. Quite literally, neither one of us took a break all day. So I've seen this and it's amazing. It actually is a, a force to watch. And I can attest to the fact that you, as good of friends as we are, you do not leave the booth. Like you are so faithful to this. I was having this discussion with Dustin because of course he's asking, well, do I start putting a booth in conferences and things like this? How beneficial has the booth aspect of your business been in terms of boosting your users and adoption? It's actually the ROI of trade shows is a really interesting Interesting question because it's a combination of almost quantitative and philosophical. So on the quantitative side, we definitely track as much direct conversions as we can, but it's the kind of thing where it's only so much because the people in the booth are often not the people purchasing. So if you look at the direct numbers, it's maybe on the order of 10 to 15% of our user base, we can tie to a show. On the other hand, we wouldn't trade it for the world because there's a bunch of second order effects. First of all, there's a lot of cases where the manager hands the details over to a junior person. Very hard to track that, very hard to attribute, especially with the size of our team. We don't have a dedicated marketing or sales ops team, but we believe in that. There's a word of mouth multiplier effect when you're at the show. So when you have a crowd, it begets more of a crowd. When you have happy customers, being there in person gives the customers a chance to talk to each other. In fact, I just got back from a show last week and heard from a lot of people that they were being sold on us by other happy customers. Just over lunch, you know, uh, over lunch, somebody just holds a court and just for 10 minutes just talks about how much they love Helioscope, how much they love the support, whatever it is. And so if anything, our physical presence is a great trigger for our customers to think about their experience. And if it's good, they'll want to tell other people. In that way, word of mouth is clearly our number one driver. So if you then say, well, of the word of mouth, a big portion of that we can attribute to trade shows, then absolutely the ROI of trade shows is there. The other thing that we're finding is just naturally as we get bigger in the market, there's a big time shift from new users to existing users. So that conference I was at last, last week, a lot of the value was in talking to our existing customers, talking to our power customers, making sure how to make the most of it. And so from a purely rational ROI point of view, it's maybe, you know, a, a quarter or a third brand new revenue and three quarters 
making sure that our existing customers are completely as in love now as they were on day one, making sure that, you know, that they know how to make the most of it, et cetera. So, you know, again, it's harder to, to put numbers to that, right? Because how do you exactly predict prevented churn? But that's how we think about our, our presence at these shows, the investments that we make, et cetera. That's a wrap on today's conversation, Solar Warriors, and you're now well-armed for battle. Hopefully, you'll take away some great tools for your own success. I'd love it if you'd share what you learned or share the episode over on LinkedIn. Let me know what other tools you need. If you want to sharpen the axe a little bit more, I've shared some of the resources we discussed in today's conversation over at mysuncast.com. Just click on the latest episode link in the title bar. Perhaps the best tool in your arsenal might be subscribing to the mailing list while you're there so that you'll get an email from yours truly when new content is available. Have a suggestion for someone you think should join the conversation? Email me, nico at mysuncast.com or shoot me a message on LinkedIn. Hey, that's it. Thanks for being here. Until next time, stay informed, my friend, and stay tuned.